Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you again for, again, your, your fantastic grace, the, the good that you do for us because you are good, the good you do for us that we do not deserve, that we never deserve, for your faithfulness, Father, in being good. And we can never thank you enough. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't expect a certain degree of gratefulness to exist, though you desire that we are grateful people. Father, we ask for your blessing because, Father, we are needy in so many ways. We do want to pray, Father, for uh, those who are working in VBS this week, that you would give them patience and strength and endurance, as well as clarity of thought, uh, the ability to communicate uh, the love of Christ, the accuracy of Scripture uh, to those who are coming and attending. We pray, Lord, for the kids that it will be fun for them and enjoyable as they learn the truths of the Word of God. And Father, we are grateful that we're still able to do this because we, do, we are aware, Lord, that there are many, many places where this kind of thing is not allowed. And so we are grateful, Lord, that we're able to take advantage of this opportunity. We pray that, again, you'll be honored and glorified throughout this week. Father, we want to also ask now that you would bless us as we open your word. Father, as we continue to study and to look at the things that Paul has written, we ask that you would give us the ability to comprehend all that Paul is communicating. The Father, that we would recognize the deficiencies and deficits in our lives and the need for having a good biblical understanding of life and those things that are expected from us, from you. We ask, Lord, that you would give to us a strong desire to apply your, your word to our life. The Father, we may live life to its fullest, living in obedience to you, being able to experience and share together the wonderful blessings of your presence, of your promises, as we pursue together purity and righteousness and holiness and seek to be used by you in the lives of those that we meet. We are grateful, Father, for your presence with us here this morning. And as always, again, we are just so thankful. And we do ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, through the first part of verse 13, it reads this way, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Let me reread to you verse 10 again in both the ESV and then in the New American Standard as we begin this morning. Verse 10 reads again, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, or for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We need to keep in mind that Paul, again, is writing to the church. He's writing to believers. And as he writes to these saints that are primarily in Corinth, uh, but really in all of uh, Achaia, chapter 1, verse 1, makes that clear that he's writing to believers. The fact that sorrow, or that the sorrow works in them a sincere repentance, again, it's not just that they are experiencing empty remorse. 
It is evidence that they are saved. That's what he wants them to understand. That's evidence that they belong to Christ, that they are genuine believers. Again, this sorrow is without regret because of the fruit that it produces in us. So those who experience this quality of of repentance will never regret it. So again, when he says there, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, we do need to, once again, make sure we grasp what does salvation refer to in this context. And again, since this letter is written to believers, to this Corinthians who are already believers, Paul is not referring to their initial salvation, but to their present tense salvation, which is really their sanctification. So when it comes to that, let me just kind of throw this out there. I came across this uh, from one of the individuals that I was reading about this passage and what was going on here with the topic of repentance that we're talking today. It was, it was uh, said, and I think this is by, um, I should have wrote, written down his name. I can't think of his name. He uh, was really involved in biblical counseling. But he says this, There are some who think change from sinful ways and sinful behaviors can be brought about apart from repentance. Not so. And for those who think there is no reason for a Christian to ever repent of sin, they need to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7 again. The idea here, let me just kind of make this clear, because when we say that there are some who think that we can change from sinful behaviors apart from repentance, some may be thinking, well, wait a minute, but I know people who have. Well, you're, you're missing the big picture here. We are not saying that individuals cannot improve in limited aspects or in limited ways in their life apart from repentance. It even happens in the lives of non-believers. There are non-believers who are drug addicts, and one day they become non-drug addicts. Those individuals are alcoholics, and one day they're no longer alcoholics. They have changed, and they have changed for for the better. But remember that what we're talking about when it comes to salvation, when it talks about the relationship we have with God and God's requirement of us, the standard that God has set, it's more than just a moving away from a particular behavior. It is your whole life. Remember that we don't rebel against God in only one small area of our life. Our whole life is in rebellion to God, and we repent of that when we come to Christ. Then as we live as believers, one of the things we have to look out for and make sure that we don't begin to drift in that direction where we are rebelling against God. And normally when we do that, we don't rebel only in one tiny area. There are many aspects to our sin. That's why we've talked before about the fact that normally when we sin, it's very rarely only one sin you commit. There's multiple sins being committed at the same time. If I, if I treat someone rudely, I'm sinning against them, but I'm also sinning against God. So there's at least two sins there. And if we were to, to basically kind of maybe diagram that out, we might actually end up realizing there's much more going on than just those two things. But that's the idea there. So here what God requires from us, what God desires of us, and, and, and again, if you think about it, this is how we are with other individuals. If, if, you are, uh, if there's a strained relationship between you and another individual, and let's say that it's over something they have done, What we are normally looking for, if we want to be reconciled to that person, is we're not really looking for only that one thing to be dealt with. We we want more of a a holistic approach. We want the whole relationship to be reestablished. We want to be reconciled to that person. And normally, as we said before, whenever there's an offense that takes place, it covers more than just one area. And so we know, again, that change, limited change, can take place. But when it comes to the life of a believer which is that we are to be turning away from our sin 
and moving in a direction to where that sin or that sinful behavior or sinful attitude becomes eliminated from our life. Repentance is required. There, there must be, again, this over and over again, turning to God, turning away from sin or that sinful behavior for whatever it is that it does for us, whether it's something we engage in to deal with stress or manipulate others or whatever's going on. The idea is that we're moving away from that in this direction towards God. So we want to make sure that as believers that we don't get caught up in really a self-help kind of movement to where the Bible becomes nothing more than just a manual so that we can live life in a sense a little better and have a little less trouble and maybe a little more happiness. That God's desire for our lives is, is, is a, a life of holiness, a life of righteousness, because he knows that that's going to affect the entire person. He wants our joy to be multifaceted. He wants us to experience the great depths of joy. Again, in the relationships we have, whether it's with your husband or your wife, you don't want to have joy only in one thing. The man doesn't say to his wife, I really have joy in our relationship when you cook such and such. And then thinking, yeah, not much else, but when you cook that, it's all good. That's, we would say, well, there's, there's a, that's a flawed relationship. The idea is, is that every facet of your life continues to be built up because of that relationship and the joy that it brings in a shared life together. And so we want to make sure that we keep that in mind uh, as Christians because this idea of repenting as believers has really kind of exited out of the thought of many Christians, especially in our Western society, as we misunderstand repentance and then have this overemphasis on always being somehow positive and eliminating all negative thoughts from our life, which normally means that we eliminate an honest dealing with sin and the real problems and the source of the problems that we and others have. The theology that Paul teaches us in the Word of God requires repentance of Christians. We need to get our thinking turned around so that our living may, might be really inverted. So there's this cognitive aspect to repentance, and it must occur along with our behavior change. It's not just a change in behavior, it's a change in thinking, whether that thinking is an approach to life, an approach to solving problems, or whatever the case may happen to be. Again, he mentions here in this passage, the last part of the verse, he talks about there being a, such a thing as worldly grief, and that worldly grief produces death. What does he mean by that? Well, John MacArthur says this, Human sorrow is unsanctified remorse. It has no redemptive capability. It is nothing more than the wounded pride of getting caught in a sin, of having one's lust go unfulfilled. That kind of sorrow leads only to guilt, shame, despair, depression, self-pity, and hopelessness. People can and do die from such sorrow. So we want to make sure that when there is sorrow for our sin or when we are dealing with our sin, whatever the case may happen to be, we want to make sure that we move beyond this. We don't, so someone feeling guilt or feeling shame or feeling despair are not necessarily signals, they're not necessarily attributes of someone who is repenting. This is an individual who's sorry, whether for what they've done because they got caught or whatever they were trying to achieve they couldn't get. We, we want to move into a position that we are truly sorrowful, we can use that word, to God because we have rebelled against him, we've disobeyed him, and we are recognizing the broader scope of what our sin or disobedience brings to our life and really those around us. Because often, maybe always, when we sin, 
We are affecting the lives of others negatively, whether they are the person you're sinning against or just those that are maybe related to you or live with you. And so we want to make sure we have a good comprehensive understanding of both sin, really, and of repentance. And, and again, repentance is necessary because we often really underestimate the strength of sin and the power of sin, not just the temptation, but again, what, what sin can bring into our life. It does bring a lot of destruction. And again, and again it's not a limited destruction. It's, it's much broader uh, at times than we ever imagined. There are some important points about uh, repentance I want to just kind of remind you of. We kind of touched on this last week, and this really comes, this is a really a beefier understanding of repentance. This comes from how the word is used in the scripture. So let me just kind of review these points with you rather rapidly. Number one, the believer in Christ is a lifelong repenter. He begins with repentance and ends with repentance. Now again, the day and age we live in, there are many when they hear that, view that very negatively. They view that as being just a, a depressing statement. That's not what that is. We need to move away from how the world thinks and approach the world through the lens of what the Bible gives us. Repentance, if you think about it, is a fantastic gift. Similar, in a sense, to what we, would, what we might consider to be a great gift, which is forgiveness. How many marriages would make it past the first couple of years without forgiveness? We often have forgiven our spouses, this goes both ways, for many things along the way. There's no other way to deal with some of the things that have gone on. It's the only way to move forward is, is through forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift. It's a gift to the human race by God. I mean, there's enough wars and problems we have in our society today. Imagine if there was no such concept as forgiveness at all on any level. It would be those who are armed to the teeth and are willing to shoot first who will survive. Because we'll be carrying grudges all the time and basically we'll be just a lot of grumpy people walking around with guns. That's what, that's what it would turn into. So we want to make sure that we recognize that this is a great gift that God has given to us because of the corrupting power of sin and what sin has done to us as individuals as well as a society. Repentance, again, is a change of mind regarding sin and God. It is an inward turning from sin to God. It's always that. If there is no inward turning to God from sin, then it's not repentance. Repentance is hating what you once loved and loving what you once hated. When we come to Christ, our desires, our wants change. They change more as we walk with the Lord through the years, but this is what's going on. There is this exchange. Uh, we are exchanging irresistible sin really for an irresistible Christ. And that alone, I think, reminds us of our great need of Christ and dependence upon him to bring about that change in us because we cannot manufacture this on our own. The religious or the spiritual person often deceives themselves in their repentance. In fact, the deceived repenter would be a worse sinner if he could, but society holds him back. So again, the idea is that we're not looking for this shallow or superficial kind of thing. We don't just add the word repent to our vocabulary, but that there's, there's nothing beyond just that. Kind of like how sometimes individuals use the word sorry or will you forgive me? We've all seen it in our kids. You know, you'd apologize for what you did. I'm sorry. And we can tell by the eye roll, the shaking of the head, the expression of the, of the whole body language, there's not a whole lot of sorrow there. 
But we do that as adults. We're just much more sophisticated. We can look very sincere and not be sorry. Now, most of us immediately recognize that in politicians. But you need to remember that politicians are what? Human beings. That means we all engage in that. Where we can look at the individual and say, you know, I, I'm, I am very sorry. I never meant to offend you. That can be very believable. And we want to believe them. That person can be doing the exact same thing our kids do, but they've learned to eliminate the eye roll. Right? They've learned to eliminate, you know, like, you know, they're not going to say, will you forgive me because I'm sure I offended you. I mean, no, you know, you immediately can tell, okay, that's fake. But we, we act well for whatever the reasons. And so we want to make sure we move away from that. A spiritual person, a, a religious person, that's, a, again, a non-believer, they desire a heaven of lighthearted ease and recreation, like an extended vacation. A heaven of holiness would be hell to such a man. We need to recognize what heaven is going to be, that, that this goal that we're thinking of, what, what is that we envision, and, and we want to move in that direction while we are here on this planet. We need to remember that God is holy, that God is in heaven, that God cannot be blamed for sending an, unho an unholy man to hell despite his most articulate profession. Because there is this demand by God. And again, it's not a negative thing. He's being upfront with us and honest about what it is that he desires. So I'm going to read verse 11 twice. I'm going to read verse 11 and then read it secondly from the Amplified. You know, I do that often. And we're going to talk about verse 11. Uh, that is the main thrust of what we're going to be talking about today because of what Paul says. Because what is going to be explained to us here is what repentance produces in us. So this really is, a, we have a list of words or phrases, seven of them, uh, that helps us to understand what repentance will produce. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. In the Amplified, it reads this way. For you can look, for you can Look back now and observe what this same godly sorrow has done for you and has produced in you. What eagerness and earnest care to explain and clear yourselves of all complicity in the condoning of incest. Because one of the things he's referring to is back in 1 Corinthians, remember there was this man who was having a, a physical relationship with his dad's wife and then the church kind of just overlooked it and then Paul kind of got on and says, you know, I don't know what you're doing, but you're condoning this, and this man is condemned. And then it appears, and I believe this is true, that in, in 2 Corinthians, this man ends up repenting of what he had done, and there were some of the church who weren't going to forgive him. And Paul had to kind of correct that as well. So he, he's kind of tying all these different things together because all these problems they have and attitude difficulties they have are, are all intertwined with the events in the church, and that was one of them. So again, they, they, they need to clear themselves of complicity in the condoning of incest. What indignation at the sin, what alarm, what yearning, what zeal to do justice to all concerned, what readiness to mete out punishment to the offender. At every point you have proved yourselves cleared and guiltless in the matter. So I think there's more, I think the Amplified there is, there's kind of a, uh, so we have to be careful, Amplified does sometimes add more than just translating, there is opinion that's being brought in here. And I think there's more going on than just making a reference to that particular instance. I do believe that is more so an instance to their involvement with these false teachers and Paul 
and their attitude towards him. And we'll see that as we go on. So again, in this verse, there's, ele- there's seven words or phrases that really are the fruit of repentance. And it appears that each of these righteous fruits of godly sorrow were really gleaned by Paul when Titus reported him. Remember we talked about that, that Paul was very concerned about what was going on in the church and some of the harsh things he had said to them in some previous letters. And so he was kind of curious as to what was going on. He was kind of worried. And then Titus was delayed in coming and he was worried about that so that when Titus finally showed up and then gave him this very good report of how the church had responded to what Paul had said, he found great relief and he was comforted uh, from the anxiety that he was experiencing and the sorrow that he was experiencing about the situation there at the church. So it's looking at, looking at those words or phrases. The first one is the word earnestness. And the earnestness here refers to the quality of genuine commitment with elements of enthusiasm and zeal. So the idea is this. There were, this earnestness characterizes true repentance for it deals with the sin immediately without procrastination or delay. So we could say then this in the application to our lives, that when there is repentance, there is a desire, there is this energy that moves you to deal with the sin quickly. You're you're not going to just procrastinate, just kind of let things drag on. You want to deal with it so that you can move forward. But you want to deal with it. All right, so again, that's not just admitting it and then moving on. It's, it's actually dealing with it. So whatever needs to be done along with that, um, whether it's only asking for forgiveness of those you've offended or maybe more, you want it to be brought to light and you want to deal with it. Secondly, he says, what clearing of yourselves? Or maybe we could use the word vindication. It's, it's where we, we get the word apologetics from. It's apologia. It refers to speech given in defense. So the Corinthians had a strong desire to clear their name. Uh, because of many things that had gone on there. They wanted to remove the stigma of their sin. They wanted to rid themselves of their guilt. They wanted to prove themselves trustworthy. So therefore, they made sure that all who had known of their sin now knew of their repentance. That's kind of the idea. There's this clear communication. Everyone who knows of the sin now knows of the repentance. Right? And that they're moving forward. Right? That gives testimony to the power of Christ, to the changing power of the Spirit of God. That, that we are different from others. Sometimes I've mentioned before that in our failings and our relationship with non-believers can give to us a great opportunity to reveal to them Christ because they, get, they can, not all of them, but they can become very uncomfortable when we ask them to forgive us maybe for some wrong we've done. There may be a backing away. They go, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, that's okay. You don't have to go through all that. That's when you say, no, I, I do have to go through all that. And then you can explain it. You see, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and, you know, God understands human beings, and he knows we have a tendency to just kind of want to sweep it on the rug as quickly as possible and then just move on and forget it happened. But I can't do that, because I, I really recognize the seriousness of, of what I've done, and that it can cause damage, hurt, whatever it happens, whatever the situation is. So it gives you really an opportunity to let them see firsthand what Christ is doing in you. So sometimes our failure in dealing with it biblically can be used by God in a very positive way in the life of other people. Now, they may not admit it. It may just be one step along the way to them coming to Christ. But it's what, a, what a glorious thing for them to be able to see. Because one of the things that I'm sure, again, we've noticed in our society, that when people do wrong, they do all they can to apologize without apologizing. And you know, they're going to ask for forgiveness without ever saying they've done anything wrong. Or if they even come close, they might say, if, if I've offended anyone. Well, clearly you have, or you wouldn't be standing here doing this. 
Right? But the idea is, is that the world doesn't want to admit these things. They're very uncomfortable because it's all about your image, all about what other people think about you. You know, never being wrong, never allowing others to see that you're vulnerable, all that kind of garbage that's out there. We want to let them see that we are standing in the strength of who? Christ. That, that my, my view of myself or my self-esteem, if you want to use that kind of terminology, is not based on your opinion of me. Now, you're not saying that, but what they can see is that you have this strength which is not a self-confidence. It really is that which exudes from this relationship you have with Christ. I, I know I'm accepted by Christ. I'm forgiven by Christ. And, be, and because my standing with Christ is not changing, I have the ability, I have the boldness, I have the bravery, I have the courage to admit when I've just messed up. And I'm, I don't have an excuse. And I'm, and I'm, I'm very sorry. For what I've done, I, I, I would like for you to forgive me for what I, And again, we want to make sure that we're clear on that. Now, you don't have to belabor the point for a week and a half, but we want to deal with it forthrightly and honestly. And that's one of the things that, that repentance produces in us. There's the word indignation. Indignation describes a state of strong opposition, a displeasure against someone or something judged to be wrong. This refers to maybe mental agitation, a state of extreme emotional disturbance, as one might see in righteous indignation. So here, in this context, it indicates the indignation at the shame brought upon God and upon the church and upon Paul by their sins. Repentance leads to anger over one's sin and displeasure at the shame it has brought on the Lord's name. That's where this righteous indignation that we should experience comes from. Repentance, then, can produce in you an anger towards yourself because of what you've now done. You've shamed the name of Christ. There, there needs to be much more of that. You cannot manufacture that on your own. You can't say, you know what? That's a, that's a good point. I do need to experience that kind of anger. I think starting tomorrow, that's what I'm going to do. It doesn't work that way. It, 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 it occurs out of this changing of the heart that the Spirit of God does uh, in conjunction with you and I reading and studying the Word of God. We pray and ask God to produce that in us. And again, this is what repentance does. So again, also think of this in terms of when we come together on Sunday mornings and we together are confessing our sin. That's the idea. We're being reminded of the importance of repentance. We repent in one sense together, but also the idea is to be encouraged to repent throughout the week of the wrong that we do. We, we want these things to be not only manifested in our life, because before it's manifested, it needs to be produced in our life. I want this to be produced in my life. Too often, it is my pride that stands in the way of this. And I want, that to, be, I want to get rid of that. And that, again, requires the ongoing work of God himself. The word fear is used. This kind of fear is in connection with the fear of the unknown. It's fear of the future. It's fear of authorities. It speaks of the terror that can seize an individual when danger appears. So in this context... This fear refers to a reverential fear of the Lord, a fear of displeasing him, a fear that shrinks back from anything that would not be pleasing to our Father. So again, this can be a motivating thing. We are at times motivated by fear. In the same way that we may be motivated by the fear of getting caught, this is obviously a much better position to be in. Uh, there are times when maybe a child is afraid to disappoint mom and dad. That's a good thing. If, if that is used in their life to control their behavior, that's a great thing. So then as God is, is dealing with us and moving in us, and as we grow mature as believers, we want to begin to become afraid of that. 
right? So that's not necessarily this terror where you hide in a closet, but there is this fear of disappointing God. And so it, it works in us as a guard to perhaps prevent us from doing things. And also, I think, coming clean on things. In other words, if I don't come clean on this, there may be this lingering uh, bad idea in the air as to who God is or how God works in the lives of Christians. I want to eliminate that. You know, I don't, I don't want to bring shame or uh, a bad uh, reputation to who God is. Because remember, we worship a very specific God. It is the God of the Bible, the one true God, a God of holiness, a God of righteousness, a God who is holy and says to us that we should be holy. A God, yes, who is loving and desires that we be loving uh, towards others. A God who is merciful, that requires that we be merciful to others. We don't want to paint a bad picture of God. And so that should then drive us and motivate us uh, as believers. He mentions a longing here. This is a yearning that refers really to reconciliation. Uh, I believe that it's, it's uh, a yearning to a reconciliation between themselves and Paul. It, it could refer to a strong desire to have their fellowship with their Heavenly Father restored. Maybe there's both elements in there, at least in the application. But here is the desire of the one who is the repentant sinner, the believer, to restore the relationship with the one who was sinned against. So this is where you do care. It does matter to you that perhaps you've hurt someone, whether you've hurt their feelings or whatever the case may happen to be. But you want that relationship to be restored. Again, not for your own ego's sake, but for their sake, for God's sake. But you want that to be restored because it's important. It is important in our, as our, in our witness as a body of believers that, that we display that to the world. We, we then should be, at least in part, a congregation of people whose relationships have been restored to each other by the grace of God. We should never pretend that we belong to a church where no one has ever been offended. That place doesn't exist. And so we are offended at times. We are disappointed with each other. It's, it's going to happen. We want to be reconciled with each other. We want, that, we want there to be that genuine reconciliation. We want people to see, we do, we want them to see that. Not because it reflects on how great we are, but how good and powerful God is. And the very real results that God brings about in our lives as people. He mentions zeal. He says, what zeal? This, this uh, idea is, again, it, it refers to eagerness, earnestness, diligence. We can ask a zeal for what? Uh, in this context of repenting, it speaks of a fervor of spirit to make things right. So again, it would be that, that strong energy coupled with this desire to see what's right being done. Genuine repentance that's energized by the Spirit of God brings about a deep desire and power to do what's right. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, says this, Many men's zeal is hot and burning. When scorns and reproaches are cast upon them, but the penitent man's zeal is most hot and burning when religion is scorned. And he really means by that Christianity. Saints persecuted, truth endangered, and the great and dreadful name of God blasphemed, etc. The zeal of a true penitent will carry him on in a course of godliness and in a course of mortification. In spite of all the diversions and oppositions that the world, the flesh, and the devil can make, Holy zeal is a fire that will make its way through all things that stand between God and the soul. So there needs to be a great zealousness in us for that, for the reputation of God. And so you can see there's this, 
There's this relationship with all of these words. They're intertwined. They're not separated and, and uh, separated categories that are not connected to each other. All these things are rolled together to what God is producing in us. Remember that sin is so powerful, so pervasive in our lives as individuals as it brings about destruction and corruption that all these things are necessary to undo what sin is doing in us. And so repentance is a major part of that. That reveals that the soul is being challenged and changed by God. And we want that to happen for the rest of our lives as Christians. Again, in the beginning, it may be more obvious when those changes take place to others, but it should remain obvious to us as we grow as believers through the years because we're intimately aware of our own sin and sorrow. Remember, I've, I've shared with you before how sometimes when, uh, when some of the Puritans and, and those kind of in that genre of individuals would keep journals, which would kind of be like, uh, many times it would be a, a way to reflect on their thinking or even their prayer life. There are times that they would describe what we might view as being a, a small difficulty with them and another individual that maybe the other individual doesn't even know about. And they talk about having a very heavy heart of, of a burden of their sin against the individual because if anyone knew what was in their heart, it would bring shame to the name of God. In some cases, it almost seems like they were writing it so someone else could read it to think that they were great. Now, people today keep journals for that reason, but I don't think they did. Because in many of those cases, their journals would have never been seen by anyone else except that one of their children or grandchildren discovered it and then had it, had it maybe put in print and revealed. Remember, there was this one case of a man... And I don't remember his name. I remember nothing about him specifically except this case he was writing about. He lived on a farm, and as would be normal, if, if, you're, if someone comes to visit you, you can see them coming because, you know, farms, you got all this land, and you can see the dust trail from, from that person walking or the horse or whatever's going on. And so he remembers seeing a man coming towards him, and he immediately recognized by his horse and his gait that it was a neighbor, and he said he immediately felt uh, irritation. Because this man was known to him to be one who would often come to borrow things and would not return them. But as he's writing about this, he's actually confessing to God his sin. Because he, was, he, he said it was not necessarily like he was holding a grudge, but he can't say he didn't hold a grudge. It's not like he hadn't forgiven the man for what he had done to him, but he couldn't say that he had forgiven him. And he's going through this back and forth, explaining how he was going through all this turmoil, and to him, this turmoil was representative of a lack of maturing in Christ, and that he ought not to be that way. And he confessed that to the Lord. And of course, as the case was, the man was there to borrow something. And he knew that he probably would not get it back. And so he said, the way that I dealt with this is I remembered the words of the Bible and I freely gave to this man, expecting nothing in return, including my property. <laughs> but he was serious about all of that. He was concerned about his growth in the Lord as a Christian, more so than his concern with being treated right by this individual. And we do need to get to that point as believers. That's important that we have a greater concern for our own holiness than being treated right by other people. And that's a hard place to get to because our selfishness will often intervene. When he says in there, what punishment, it means the meeting out of justice, which again, these, uh, in this church, they had carried out against the immoral man that we had mentioned before. When a repentant person sees injustice, they have a strong desire to see justice meted out and wrongs righted by restitution if necessary. 
Again, when we apply this personally, this trait depicts genuine repentance as seeking repayment of any damages or losses incurred in the unrepentant state. This is somewhat related, but I remember talking to a young man once, many, many years ago. This is back when I was living in Hawaii. Uh, he uh, was a young man in his 20s. He'd become a believer. And as he was growing, he was evaluating his life. And he came to me, he had a huge problem. And he was really, he was very serious about this. He was feeling guilty because he remembers that when he was in high school, uh, he had figured out a way to get soda out of the soda dispenser without using any money. And he kind of figured out how much he had taken and drank through high school. And he said, I have this, I, I have, I, I need to pay back for what I've taken. He said, what do I do? I said, well, go to the school. Tell them what you did. Give them the money. He said, well, that's the problem. I did that. He said, they freaked out. They didn't know what to do. They said, nobody wanted, you know, he said, I have this money. This is what I did in high school. And he said, they literally did this. They, they like, you know, I said, we need to go back and help them out. Say, look, you don't know where the money goes or what the money is being raised for. Say, perhaps it's, there's something for the students or whatever, but you, that they have to take the money, that you'll write the check out to the school or whatever it is, but that you, this needs to be done and tell them it's because you've become a Christian and you want to make right the wrongs you've done as best you can. And so he went back and did that. And as a result of that, one of the ladies that worked there in the office was struck with an overwhelming sense of guilt that she had tears in her eyes when she took the check and said to him, thank you. And then later she got the address off of his check and wrote him a letter saying that she had gone back to church and that she had repented of her sin and in a sense come back to the Lord because of his act. How incredible is that? That's wonderful. And so we, we need to be about this. So again, Verse 10 and 11, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So again, when he says, for see what earnestness this godly grief, or, or see what earnestness this repentance has produced in you, what has it produced? You also, uh, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And then he says, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. John MacArthur again says this, the essence of repentance is an aggressive pursuit of holiness, which was characteristic of the Corinthians. The Greek word for innocent really here means pure or holy. They demonstrated the integrity of their repentance by their purity. Now we know that they weren't innocent in the way we think of innocence, but the point that Paul was making is that they have recovered innocence or they have recovered purity through repentance. When a person is truly overcome with repentance, it affects their whole life. Again, it's not like they only try to change the one area that has been pointed out. Their whole life turns over. I don't know about you, but I think that would be a great thing to do, is to be able to, to somehow recover purity in my life, to recover innocence. I think there are many here that would like to recover innocence, to have freedom in their mind, that sin has been dealt with, to experience the blessing of forgiveness. Not in the sense that you know intellectually that you have been forgiven, but to experience emotionally the freedom of that burden being lifted. That's, that is a great gift from God. You can read many, many secular books where they have mentioned that there are many individuals who are involved in various types of behaviors that are 
harmful because of guilt and because of a burden. And we can experience a great release of that through Christ. Not because it's as if we've never sinned, because we clearly have, and it's been acknowledged by God and acknowledged by us, and God has truly forgiven and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation that Paul mentioned earlier. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for being so good to us. Many of us, Father, probably have been able to live many years of our life being free from something that we were unaware we were free from. But we've been able to experience life and really, in essence, enjoy a great deal of life because we are no longer carrying around the burden and the guilt of our sin. And we have you to thank for that. Along with that, Father, some of us, through time, have kind of slipped back into wrongful ways of living and thinking, and perhaps we've not noticed that we're not as free and we're able to experience life as fully and as deeply as we did before and somehow have become content where we are. Pray, O Lord, that we would become much more discontent where we are and that we would earnestly long for the absolute freedom to be absolutely free and clear from this burden that we carry to truly recognize the magnificence of your forgiveness and that the path to experiencing this as believers is to experience the gift of repentance that you give to us. May we hunger for that, Father. May we live that out in our lives. May we desire for your spirit to produce that in us. The Father, we may live life to its fulfillment as best as it can be lived in a world that is cursed by sin. Father, how we long to have that kind of joy present with us regardless of any circumstances we find ourselves in. And we thank you, Lord, that that is available for all of us regardless of the sin in our life. So, Father, we pray not only that we would seek to repent and live in light of repentance, but, Father, we ask that when others are struggling with this or perhaps even come to us repenting, Father, may we embrace them, may we pray for them, may we help them, may we encourage them along the way. Prevent us, Father, from ever giving any kind of false comfort to any, any individual to somehow make light of whatever they're feeling burdened about, but truly to engage with them, Father, to encourage them to deal with these things fully and truly, that they may experience the wonderful blessings that Paul has given us here as a result of repentance. And again, Father, as we always do, we want to pray for those who may have never experienced repentance on any level because, Father, they, they don't know you and they still find themselves heavily burdened. And we pray, Lord, that they would continue to feel the weight of their sin until, Lord, the time comes that you open their eyes to see the wonderful gift of salvation that you give to us through Christ. We pray they would turn to you. So, Father, we ask that you would continue to deal with them and never leave them alone for a moment. And so, Father, we do also pray for those here this morning who have sought to live a life of repentance. And we pray that you multiply their joy. That, Father, they may experience the full and wonderful blessing of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.